welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. The Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary in describing the word revolution says this in one of its definitions, a sudden, radical, and complete change of any kind. A sudden, radical, and complete change. And that's, a, I think, a good definition for what the word revolution means, except for maybe the word sudden. I think the truth is that a revolution, something that turns the world or a situation upside down, doesn't actually happen suddenly. It doesn't happen overnight. Maybe if we can say this, if a revolution is a raging fire that takes over a place, it begins with a spark. And if you look at any kind of revolution, the spark or the sparks that start it are often someone challenging an assumption. Someone challenges an assumption, a deeply held, subconsciously, unconsciously um, uh, believed in truth, uh, taken for granted that this is the way the world is. And someone comes along and says, but what if that's not true? Someone comes in and challenges the assumption that you have to own a taxi cab to be a taxi driver and Uber is born. <laughs> the spark is, is that really true? Copernicus came in and challenged the idea, the deeply held belief that the earth was the center of the universe and that it was stationary. And he said, what if that's not true? It was the spark that started what became known as the Copernican revolution, that actually the earth revolved around the sun and the earth revolved itself. Revolutions start with a spark of someone challenging a deeply held, unconsciously, subconsciously taken for granted truth. And someone comes along and says, well, what if that's not true? That is probably a great way to describe the revolution of Jesus, which is what we are looking at these weeks. His, his teaching in life and his life really that, that exemplified or acted out his teaching in real life so we could see it, his death and resurrection that turned the world upside down. One of the ways to see his teaching is the, is the sparks that started the revolution, Thing, things that questioned and challenged deeply held assumptions. It's actually one of the ways that we've been looking at his revolution. The, the, the problem with that is, or the thing we have to realize is, no one likes to have their deeply held beliefs challenged. No one likes to have assumptions that are subconscious, unconscious, that are operating at a very deep level of our lives that we just taken for granted that they're true. Nobody likes to have those challenged and turned on their heads. And the part of the revolution of Jesus that we are going to look at today, the story that we're going to examine in one of his biographies, is certainly one of those ones where I can, I think it's safe to say that most of us will say, what, Jesus? No, you can't challenge that. That's not really true what you're saying. And the reason I say this is because this is exactly what I feel right now. I struggled with this as I wrote, and I'm now teaching this uh, particular message to you. I am in the middle of the struggle. It's kind of messed me up a little bit. And so I just thought I would invite you in and mess you up too, because <laughs> that's my job. Um, as we look at the revolution of Jesus, as he's poking or challenging something that we say, what, really? I want you to listen to this passage of scripture today that is where we're going to camp out. This particular story um, that uh, the gospel writer Matthew wrote down about a conversation Jesus had with an individual who was kind of a rarity in those days, someone who was not like most other people, which would make us think, oh, that doesn't apply to most people. That just applied to those rare people. In fact, that's the disciples who were listening in on the conversation thought too. But actually, as I started to read through this and write this, and now as I'm teaching it to you today, realizing this is so applicable, so relevant, and actually pretty much everyone in the world, and certainly almost everyone in North America and the country we live in, is in the same boat as this young man that Jesus has a conversation with. And so I want you to listen. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I wonder if you caught what Jesus was doing in this conversation. He was challenging an assumption. He has a conversation with this young man. And in the conversation, he actually throws in this spark, you know, one of the sparks that started the revolutionary fire of Jesus. That turned the world upside down. It began with a little simple conversation like this that probably most people, like a spark, didn't see, didn't pay attention to. But years later, the gospel writers, because they probably wrote this down 20, 30, 40 years after it happened, after they had been talking about it, as they did in an oral tradition, exchanging stories. Remember when Jesus said this? Remember when Jesus said that? And other people said, yeah, I was there, I heard this. They wrote this one down. They said, oh yeah, this was one that set the world on fire. Jesus in this conversation with this man is challenging the consumption assumption. Jesus challenging the consumption assumption in this conversation. And you might say, well, what's the consumption assumption? Well, to, to understand that, we actually have to look into the story a little bit. Now, at first glance, we could, I think, incorrectly conclude quickly that this story is, oh, Jesus is telling this rich guy to be more generous with his wealth. You know, he tells him to sell what he has and give it to the poor. That's what this is, a story about generosity and people who have more sharing with those who have less. Now, Jesus said that in other places, but that's not what this conversation was about. So let's kind of jump in and say, well, what was Jesus really doing? What consumption assumption was Jesus challenging? Now, first, the context is, it's this young man who comes to ask Jesus what he must do or what he needs to do in order to, and he uses these words, inherit or get eternal life. Now, if you've been a part of our church before, or even if you never, I'm just going to pause and, and, and explain to you, with this phrase, eternal life, comes up a lot in, in the New Testament, the gospel writers, the biography of Jesus in these conversations. And it is not about, in a sense, living forever, immortality. Uh, primarily. It's not primarily even about sort of future heaven one day, eternal life as something in the future. There's a future component to it, but the word life is translated from the Greek word zoe, not the Greek word bios. The Greeks would have used the word bios to describe physical sort of muscles, blood, nervous system, skeletal system, life. Okay, biology is where we get that from. This word zoe was actually a more complete word. It included bios, but it was actually a description of fullness of life. We can say fullness where, or, or, you know, life to the full. Mind, body, soul, heart, spirit, everything bursting with life, vitality, fullness, <laughs> that never goes away. That's the idea of eternal Zoe, a kind of fullness, a bursting from the inside out on every level, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, thriving fullness that never dies. This was the concept of eternal life. And this young man comes to Jesus, probably because he had heard that Jesus was a teacher, that Jesus was talking about and dealing with eternal life. And he comes to him to say, how do I get this? How do I get more of this? Now, you may not have used the, the phrase eternal life or you didn't know that Zoe meant that, but that's a question we all want to know. How do I have vitality? How do I have a fullness in me that doesn't eventually get empty again? How do I have a vitality in me that never dies, that I'm always bursting with life in every aspect, of, right? We all want that. Whether you're a person of faith or not, man, like, aren't we all after that? And so this man comes to ask Jesus, how do I get that, Jesus? Now, there were times when people um, came to ask Jesus things and they were, they were trying to trick him or trap him. And we, we've looked at passages like that before. They're, they're, you know, they're angling, they've got a hidden agenda. This is not one of those cases. 
I think that we can read the text and say, this young man earnestly wanted to know, how do I get life to the full? How do I get fullness? And he was sincere. We also know he wasn't looking to cut corners. He wasn't looking for easy answers because Jesus kind of gives him the answer he expects at first. Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And he lists a bunch of commandments that have to do with relationships. And then he summarizes them with, you know, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is kind of a summary of part of the law. Like treat people well, like how you love other people, how you treat other people. And this young man says, yeah, I've kept all of those. So he was someone saying, okay, I've done that. But he doesn't say, great, I got it. He says, I've done all that. Is there anything else? So he's earnestly trying to understand. He, he's sincere and he's serious. We also know from the, the description of the text that he was rich. And the, and the Greek word for rich was plusios, which interesting also means fullness. <laughs> you know, fullness of stomach, fullness of pantry, fullness of bank account, right? a full life, that, that he was a rich person. And as I said, rich people in a sense in that were, were rare in those days. This was not sort of a, uh, an economy where wealth was very evenly distributed. You did not have a robust middle class. You had the very few incredibly wealthy and everybody else just trying to make it. Certainly in the areas where Jesus lived, in Galilee, Nazareth, and the towns, very few people would have been rich. And the assumptions, the disciples are now watching this guy come and they would have assumed that because this guy was rich, that he was actually experiencing some of eternal life already. He was really close to getting everything um, the way he needed to be. He was close. He's, he's coming to Jesus. They're probably thinking, good, we need disciples like this. Most of the rest of us don't have enough money. We need someone who's got some wealth who's going to follow. Like, this is good. Because they would have assumed this was the consumption assumption in their day, that wealth is a blessing. Wealth is a blessing. That was the consumption assumption. And there's a few reasons for that. They lived in the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East was a, a society where wealth depended on, you know, it was an agrarian society. So it depended on, did you get enough rain and sun um, for your crops? Did you, were, did you not have any drought or any mildew or any pests that come and ate away your crops? Um, did your herds multiply? And did you have children in your household who were going to work in your business? And children were your, were your RRSPs. <laughs> they were your retirement plan. They were going to prosper in the business that you set up, and they would look after you when you got old. They were old age security. And both for the rain and the mildew and the pests and getting pregnant, you couldn't be in control. Those were, that was what the gods did. And so that's why you had people who offered sacrifices to fertility gods or to, they offered grain to gods of the rain or whatever. They needed them to do that. That was how the Near East worked. They understood that, hey, um, if you get rain on your crops, if you get sun, if you get a good harvest, if you have children, if your crops or your herds multiply, that's a blessing. That comes from the gods. Now, for the Jewish people, God, Jehovah God, the God, had actually told them that's how it worked. Back in Deuteronomy in the law, when he first sort of laid out what life looked like for them, when he rescued them from slavery, and he said, this is how you're to live. If you live properly, I will bless you. And blessing looks like, you know, your good crops, good harvest, uh, your, your herds multiply, your cattle grows, your estate grows, you have children, you will have protection from mildew, from pests, from uh, bandits and robbers. That's what blessing looked like. So the Jewish people themselves, not just because they were part of a Near East culture, but God had said to them, remember Jesus was constantly doing this, hey, I know God said this, but I say this. Well, they believed wealth was a blessing. That was the consumption assumption for them. And so they look at this young man who's like, man, he's sincere. He's serious. He doesn't want to just keep a few of the commandments. He probably would have been someone who had given to the poor, you know, because that was part of what it meant to love your neighbor and keep the commandments. He would have given to the temple. And he's wealthy. So clearly he's already blessed. He already has a fullness, like the full pantry, the full stomach, the full bank account were signs of eternal life, they thought. So this guy's really close, <laughs> And yet, something totally unexpected happens in the conversation. Jesus tells him, he says, okay, you want to be perfect. In other words, which just means uh, you want to complete the picture for yourself. Okay, you're missing one thing. Just go sell what you have and follow me. And it says the young man turned around and walked away full of sadness. 
<laughs> which the disciples are probably watching going, Jesus, what did you say? Like, why did you discourage that? We need that guy. Have you looked at our bank account? Like, what happened in this conversation where Jesus is having this conversation with this man who seems so close and he challenges the consumption assumption and he walks away. Jesus in this conversation with him actually puts out a revolutionary idea in challenging the consumption assumption. He says, I know all of you, and the disciples, he goes on to have this conversation. I know all of you think wealth is a blessing. But what if it isn't? What if wealth is dangerous? Jesus challenging the consumption assumption. I know you think wealth is a blessing, but what if wealth is dangerous? Which his disciples would have been like, what? Because in fact, he says to the young man, hey, you lack this one thing, get rid of what you have and come follow me. And the man turns away and is full of sadness. And Jesus actually turns to the disciples and he said, you know what? It's actually, the wealth is actually a problem. And they're like, what? Are you, do you mean, Jesus, that having a full stomach and a full pantry and a full bank account aren't signs of eternal life and that you're actually really close? And Jesus says, no, they're not. In fact, the more you have, the harder it will be to actually have eternal life, to actually have life that lasts forever. The more full you are with riches, the harder it might be to actually experience life to the full. To which the disciples say, how's that even possible? And Jesus presses the point even further. He says, you know, the camel, and they would have seen camels. It was probably the most visible, sort of largest visible animal that they would had in their life. They were, they were um, a part of their um, culture that would have been not only in, in sort of desert nomadic culture, but in, in everyday life, they've been part of cattle or whatever. They were beasts of burden as well. He says they're the largest, you know, gangly, the little knobby knees and the big humps and everything. He says, yeah, you know, trying to put, imagine trying to put a camel through an eye of a needle, which is not even like, imagine trying to do something hard. It's like, it's impossible. And the disciples go, then who can be saved? In other words, saying, what? If wealth isn't a blessing, we're all doomed. Like, how does that even work? Jesus says, no, what if wealth isn't a blessing? What if it's actually dangerous? Now, we could listen to this account and say, whew, you know, thank goodness I'm not rich. You know, this guy's got problems. You know, he, it's hard for him to get into the kingdom, but I'm good because I'm not rich. And can I just challenge that assumption as well and say, I think in many ways we probably all are. Probably most of us listening to this message, most of us living in this country would have to say, if we think about it for a moment, we probably are rich. Let me give you a couple of questions to think about, to, to diagnose where you're at. You might be rich if, okay, listen to this. You might be rich if your stomach is more likely to hurt because you ate too much rather than eating too little. You might be rich if you have stomach pains every so often because you ate too much, not because you had to skip several meals. You might be rich if a crisis is that the internet is slow. <laughs> You might be rich if things get delivered to your home on a semi-regular basis. Pizza, books, technology. You might be rich if you don't have to work seven days a week. And you might even get paid to take a few days, a few weeks off a year. You might be rich if you have more than one pair of shoes or multiple shirts and pants. You might be rich if you get rid of something that works to get something else that's newer. You might be rich. You might be rich if a bank will lend you money at a rate that you can actually afford to pay back. You might be rich if your government will actually give you money to help you get through a time when you lost a job or you got laid off. You might be rich if you have your own bed and you don't share it with three or four other siblings. You might be rich if you have heat in the winter and air conditioning in the summer in your car. 
I don't need to go on. By most standards of the world and its economy, most of us are rich. And so we don't need to sit here comparing going, well, that person's more rich than me or I'm more rich than that person. We are all actually in the boat of this rich young man. The reason why we don't realize it is because we are immersed in a culture and an advertising world and a social media world that is constantly reminding us of what we don't have. We are constantly made aware of what we don't have, about what other people are buying or what people wealthier than We are always aware of that. That is the entire world of capitalism to make you aware of what you don't have or make you aware of how what you have is not good enough anymore or obsolete or isn't as good so that the world keeps turning on its consumption axis. That's just the world we live in. That's not a a pejorative statement. That's just a statement of fact. That's how capitalism works. And we are all in it. I have a confession to make. Like you, Maybe you've spent a little, like, uh, like uh, I've spent a little more time outside in the pandemic, which is great. I've been walking a lot with my family and I've been running a bit more. And one of the things that's happened as I run through my neighborhood is I pass nice houses. I pass bigger houses than the house I have. I, ha- I pass houses with a nicer lawn. I pass houses that have for sale signs on them that look nicer than the house that I have. And I'll be honest, I used to criticize people who would go quietly, who go on like MLS. I'm like, they were like, oh yeah, I was on Realtor.ca. I'm like, why? You have a house. Like, Okay, so I'm a, I judge people. Okay, so just confession. We all do it. And here I am running through these neighborhoods. And what am I doing? I'm starting to get dissatisfied with the house I have. We've been stuck. It's too small. There's five of us. And the rooms aren't quite big enough. And the driveway, you know, the kids can't play basketball on certain days because the other cars are there from our neighbor. We share. And the backyard is this and that. And I'm starting to become more aware of everybody else's nicer house and what it could have. And then I actually went on realtor.ca, whatever. Now, some of us may be going, oh yeah, I have a bigger house than you. And yeah, I can see how you do. Other people are like, are you crazy? You have a house? Like you should just be happy. We are all in this. We're all in this together. We are all in a sense, most of us wealthy in some, by some definition or another. I remember a few years ago getting a chance to take a team to Guinea, West Africa. Um, and some of you have been able to do that with our partners that are out there in West Africa, Lizette Lavoie in Guinea. And I remember coming home after being there for 12 days and coming home from the airport and I noticed, oh, there's no, I don't need an armed guard to escort me out of the airport from getting my bags, which I did when we were in Conakry. Uh, I I drove home on a paved road. I wasn't, my car wasn't going in and out of like six foot deep potholes because our roads are paved. I drove down our street, which didn't have garbage all over the street. And I pulled into the driveway of my own house. I thought, man, I'm wealthy. I'm blessed. But am I? Are we? Is wealth really a blessing? Now, I know we can say when we're aware of those things, we say, oh, I feel blessed. In other words, we know, okay, this, is, this didn't come from me. Like, I don't deserve this. So I get that statement. But the idea that wealth is a blessing is an unconscious, deeply held belief from the first century to the 21st century. And Jesus challenges it and says, maybe it's actually dangerous. Now, why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus challenge the consumption assumption, not with a conversation about, hey, you should make sure if you have some wealth, you should give it away. That's not what he's saying. He's saying maybe it's actually an obstacle. Maybe it's dangerous. Why? Well, Jesus doesn't actually explain all the reasons why in this particular passage. But if we look at some of the other things that he said and some of the other things that Jesus talked about, we can actually piece it together. And if we actually look at our own lives, And here's why, just two reasons why wealth might be dangerous for us. (laughs) And it is about the dangerous equation of wealth. And here's one reason. With more wealth, there is the potential to have less dependence on God. The more wealth we have, the greater risk we have of having less dependence on God. What do I mean by that? Well, the more wealth we have, do we really need to depend on God? for a full stomach 
or a full pantry or a full bank account? No, it's in our hands to do. We can earn money. We can feed our family. We can feed ourselves. We can get the things we need. We can get the things we want. And we might say, oh yeah, no, I know the job came from God. But ultimately, functionally on a daily basis, we just depend on ourselves. We are the ones who are able to meet our own needs. We have enough for what we need and sometimes even for what we want. We are the ones on a daily basis who are providing. The more wealth we have, the more we are aware of the things that we are able to do. That actually leads to more self-reliance and less God dependence, right? More self-reliance and less God dependent. I'm not actually relying on God for the things I need on a daily basis. I'm relying on myself because I'm the one that's providing. And the problem with that is that can either lead to pride where I feel like I've done this, I've worked hard, look at what I've accomplished, or fear. Oh no, it depends on me. Because either way, self-reliance means it's up to you, it's up to me, it's not up to God. And so I'm depending on myself, which can lead to pride or fear, stress, anxiety, worry, because it's up to me. And that's why potentially wealth is not a blessing, but actually a danger in our lives, because the more we have of it, the greater risk there is that we are depending on, relying on ourselves and not depending on God, which is another way of dependence is faith, right? That our, our faith can actually be diminished the greater our wealth. The fuller our pantries, the fuller our stomachs, the fuller our bank accounts, the more we rely on ourselves, the less we depend on God. And that's why Jesus says this actually could be dangerous in your life. And the second reason is the more wealth the greater or uh, more wealth, less hunger for God. Not just dependence on God, but less hunger for God. Why? Because there is a relationship between the level of fullness or satisfaction in our lives to the things that we need and want and the level of satisfaction, hunger, and desire for the things of God. Said another way, if I have a full stomach and a full pantry and a full bank account, and a full vacation schedule, I don't have a need or a desire for anything else. I'm full. There's no room to hunger for God. There's no room for, to hunger for, Jesus says, like eternal life, things that actually last forever. Even though the meal doesn't last forever and the clothes don't last forever and the house doesn't last forever and the vacation doesn't last forever and the feeling of buying something new doesn't last forever because it, it pills, it fades, it rusts, it breaks down, it becomes obsolete. We are still so full and we choose to fill ourselves with another thing that doesn't last forever. And all that does is increase the risk that it is dampening, suppressing, eliminating our hunger and desire for God because we're already full. <laughs> this is the irony of those two words, plusios, rich, fullness, and eternal life, life to the full forever. Now, Jesus isn't a minimalist here. He isn't saying, oh, it's bad that you have stuff. It's bad that you make money. Money is bad. No, what is he saying? He's actually has this conversation with the rich young ruler. He says, listen, you need to exchange the treasure that you do have for riches that last forever. This is not about minimalism or deprivation. It's an exchange of one treasure for another. Jesus was saying, hey, the treasure you have in this life don't think of it as a blessing. In fact, he says to this young man, eternal life, hear this, eternal life was not found in selling his stuff. Eternal life was found in following Jesus. The problem was he couldn't follow Jesus because his stuff was in the way. <laughs> it was an obstacle and therefore it was endangering his grasp on eternal life. It was endangering his experience of the fullness and the treasures that God give us, gives us that aren't that don't have to do with material wealth and fullness. And so Jesus was saying, you got to exchange one for the other. And you get that by following me. Now, before we kind of, you know, we want to acknowledge, okay, this is actually for us too. That guy may have been a rarity in his day, but we, it's not a rarity in our day. We are all rich in some shape or form. Most of us, most of us are not worried about where our meal's coming from tomorrow. Most of us not only have what we need, we can regularly get things we want as well. And Jesus is saying, hey, 
challenge the assumption that wealth is a blessing, it might be dangerous because it might be decreasing your dependence on God and decreasing your hunger for God. And so we need to hear Jesus' invitation to say, hey, there's a different kind of treasure that I'm inviting you to grasp by letting go of this other kind of treasure. And before we talk about practically what does that mean for us, I want to stop and just let the band lead us in a song where one person has put this idea of Jesus being worth more, more fullness in Jesus, more satisfaction in Jesus than anything else we might have, has put it into poetry for us to sing, to listen to, and experience. Tasted the world, see more than enough. Its promises fleeting of water and wine. I've emptied the cup and found myself wanting. But there is a well that never runs dry. The water of life, the blood of the vine. Cause all If you're not my one thing, everything I need right now, all I need is you right now. One thing I ask, and this I will see.
important for us to realize that what Jesus is and isn't asking us to do. You know, we might look at this and say, oh, he said to this young man, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Is that what Jesus is saying to you and me today? Sell everything we have, get rid of it all. Well, I think we should be cautious before we think that because this is the only place Jesus said this to somebody. Another time, a conversation with someone who was very wealthy. We don't actually know what Jesus said, but the person comes out of a conversation with Jesus and says, you know what? I'm going to give away half my stuff and I'm going to repay anyone I've cheated. That's a different conversation. Other times, Jesus talked with people who were wealthy and there was no conversation about money. They actually used their money to help his ministry. And so Jesus doesn't have the same conversation with every person. But what is true about all of us is who are in this place of being wealthy is to listen to the story and say, you know what? It's possible that if it was a danger, if it was an obstacle for that young man in being able to take hold of the eternal riches, the eternal treasure that Jesus offers, it might be dangerous for me too. And if we allow, if you and I allow Jesus to challenge the consumption assumption and say, you know what? Maybe wealth isn't a blessing. It might be dangerous. It might be an obstacle. Here's some decisions that you might end up considering. Something you might choose to do if you um, assume that maybe wealth isn't a blessing, but it could be an obstacle, could be dangerous. You might, you might choose to study something that won't make you much money. You might choose to study something. You might say, you know what? Financially, I don't need to set that as my primary goal anymore for what I'm going to study. I'm going to study something else because my goal is not to make more of something that could be dangerous to me. <laughs> you might move for relationships or your church rather than for the size of your house. You might rethink your housing decisions if you know, hey, I don't need to assume that wealth is a blessing. You might move for other reasons. You might choose to take a job for less pay and more purpose. If you let Jesus challenge the assumption, you might do that. You might spend time with people who have less stuff and more hunger for God. They may not run in the same social circles you do. They may not run in the same social class as you, but they have a hunger for God that you want more of. And so you might choose to spend more time with them. You might decide to cap your income. Say, so you know what? I actually can and have lived on less and I could live at this mark and no matter how much more I make, it's not going to be for me. I'm going to cap that. Why? Because I'm not going to assume that more wealth is better for me. It might actually be dangerous. You might decide to cut out the things that cause you to compare. You know what I've realized in my runs? I don't want to cut out running because I like running. But you know what I decided I need to do? And I just decided this week. I need to start praying for my neighborhood rather than coveting other people's houses. <laughs> when I run through the neighborhood, I need to pray for God's kingdom to come for every home, for marriages to be restored and healed, for children to grow up with a sense of purpose and not fear. I need to pray for physical healing from COVID. I need to pray for um, communities and neighborhoods to come together and actually um, begin to change our neighborhoods and do good and to treat each other with hospitality. I need to pray for faith to come to the homes that I'm running past, not wonder what it would be like to have that home. Some of us need to cut out or change the things that are causing us to compare ourselves always to people who have more than us. And that may mean cutting out social media. It may be cutting out the kinds of things you look at, the magazines you look at or whatever, just saying, I need to change that. You might, if you believe actually Jesus' challenge to the consumption assumption, you might measure yourself or your kids against a different standard of success. You may think differently about what you've, quote, achieved in life. You may think differently about what you want to achieve in life. You may think differently about what you want your kids to achieve in life if you let Jesus challenge this assumption. And maybe you might give until you've created a need that you need God to come through for, right? If you have an error in your life that you don't need him to come through for because you have everything you need, you might decide to start giving in that area until you need him to come through to increase your dependence on him. 
I want you to just listen to one person's story as read for us of how they decided to exchange one kind of treasure for riches that last forever. When I was a young child, my parents divorced. Our church supported us by sending my mom, my sister, and me to a Singles Again retreat at a conference center in Muskoka for a weekend in the spring. That weekend, I fell in love with the beauty of Muskoka. My mom was offered a summer position to work at the conference center, which had my sister and I return with my mom a few months later. I simply loved being there, and I often told my mom that my dream was to one day be able to afford to have a trailer in the trailer park with a nice cedar deck built on it and a boat in the marina. I wanted to be in a position to offer others the experiences that I had experienced. Many decades later, my wife and I found ourselves moving back to Canada from the US and we stumbled upon an old dilapidated cottage on one of the lakes in Muskoka that was in desperate need of repair. With our young family, our prayer was that this cottage would be a place of community that would enrich people's lives, that it would be a place of love and joy and hope. And over the next five summers, it became a place of respite and rest for many. We were able to serve and love people from various walks of life, and as a result, we saw many relationships grow. Last summer, as we completed the final touches of the renovation on the cottage, we were unexpectedly prompted by God's Spirit to list the property for sale. Those close to us were shocked as they knew what the cottage meant to us and had experienced the joy that it brought to many relationships over the years. For us, however, as we found ourselves in the middle of a global pandemic, we actually felt God calling us to be able to free up financial resources so we could be in a position to respond to the needs of our community. While we love Muskoka, and having a cottage was something that I thought would be part of our lives for years to come, I recall God asking me to think about this question. If we aren't willing to boldly sacrifice to prioritize the needs of others, and support our community during a global pandemic, then when will we? Sacrifice is personal and specific to each individual, but we were confident that God was prompting us to trust that he could use the proceeds from the sale of the cottage in even greater ways than he did within the walls of the cottage. Because of God's faithfulness through the years, we have never doubted his provision. Even if it seemed like he was providing very little in the eyes of others, it has always been abundant in ours. Through the years of having much and not having much, he has taught us to hold loosely the things he's given us, knowing they are actually his to use for his purposes and glory. Perhaps that's why letting go of the cottage, while difficult, wasn't as painful as it could have been. When my grip is loose, there's no need for God to pry it free. God has shown himself to be faithful to do so much more than we could ever imagine. And watching him do this time and again has brought more joy than the things we let go ever could and ever did. We felt called years ago to adopt a family motto, to live life for the benefit of others. The funny thing is, we found that living for the benefit of others through sacrifice and obedience to God has actually benefited us. Through rich relationships, seeing God at work in the lives of the people we serve, having a much deeper understanding of who God is and what he's done for us, and becoming more aware of his constant presence with us. Okay, church. So in light of all this, in light of what we've heard from Pastor Vijay, in light of the testimony that Pastor T uh, Tony read for us, I wanted to lead you actually in um, a quick prayer exercise that you could act do at home on your own whenever you really want. Um, but I wanted you to take some time to actually listen to God and what he is saying to you um, over the course of this hour. So would you join with me? First thing I need you to do is to close your eyes and just take a couple of deep breaths in through your nose out through your mouth and quiet your heart and your mind. Maybe two more deep breaths. Now with your eyes closed, take your hands and, and ball them up into fists. Squeeze them tight, like really tight. You need to feel the tension. 
you don't need to hurt yourself. I don't want you to be bleeding if you're somebody with long nails, but, but clench those fists really tight. I just need you to feel like your hands tiring from holding them so tightly. And as you do that, your eyes closed, just ask God in your mind, just think it. Ask God to show you who or what you are holding on to tightly for comfort or for security. It might be a relationship that you're in or one that you hope to be in. It could be your job or, or your money or your paycheck. It could be your honor, like your, your popularity or your grades um, or what people think of you, your, your accomplishments. It could be that. It might be your time. Try not to rush. Try to listen and hear from God. Trust that he can speak to you. Now, when you're ready, release your hands, release your fists, feel the blood, you know, rush back into your fingers. You can wiggle your fingers a little bit and, and just feel how, um, like the relief of that, how, how nice it feels and leave your hands open, open-handed, maybe to the sky and talk to God about what it would look like for you to live more open-handedly. Thank him for his beautiful generosity to you and the fact that that's this, this open hand is how he approaches you. Ask him to help you release any scarcity mentality, any fear that you have that you won't have enough or that you will be in want in your own life. Church, be encouraged. I know this is hard. I know it's hard to release the things that we think that we need. Jesus knew that too. And that's why he said, he said in Matthew 19, verse 26, he said, remember with man, with humans, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Covered on